Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us again for another episode on our podcast. Today, it's just Rebecca and I. Um, Darla is off learning, being smart, working hard. She's working so hard, and y'all, honestly, she's probably going to make a face at us when she hears this, but we're so proud of her. She She's doing good stuff, so... She has left the two of us to run amok and do the things that we want. And since we both have squirrely brains, we are veering off the direction that we have been taking with our episodes. And we are going to talk today about assessments. We're going to start in the delivery room, how to start your assessment, what do you need to know, and then move on into the unit and your assessments. And Yeah, you know, the way that Darla always describes it is you have a bucket of possibilities. And when you're looking at your baby, you're sort of ruling things into the bucket or out of the bucket. And then, you know, that bucket is kind of where you get your differential diagnosis and and you whittle down from there. And obviously in nursing, you know, diagnosing is not what we do. But if I can kind of come up with a list of what I suspect then it lets me know how to advocate, what to ask for, you know, what I'm looking for. Uh, And so part of assessment, too, is not just a good baseline, but also, you know, when you start looking at your bucket, how do you tailor that to really get the things that you need to be able to advocate? Because the thing that I have learned in my career is – you know, a doctor doesn't really want to hear, something's wrong with my baby. Well, no kidding, something's wrong with your baby. If someone's wrong with your baby, you wouldn't be in the NICU. <laughs> right. They <laughs> say it. They want to know what you think is wrong with your baby. Right. So objective data is something that's always going to be well-received from your providers. You know, practitioners and physicians are responsible for all the babies in your unit. And, and really being able to have objective data also helps them with, with their bucket. And you can't get that good objective data and be able to advocate if you don't have a good assessment. Very true. If you just go and you're like, oh, well, I walked by and my baby's belly looks a little bigger from earlier. Okay. Well, what right. does that mean? If you go to that physician and you say or that provider and say, when I did my first assessment, my belly measured 28 centimeters. It was nice and round and soft, but now I've done my second assessment. I'm now measuring 30 centimeters. It's hard, it's loopy, and it's blue. So we're going to move forward and make it work towards a diagnosis versus, well, come back to me later right. when you have some more solid information. And I know as a nurse, it's it's incredibly frustrating to feel like your provider is kind of blowing you off. When you think, you know, it's important, like I'm coming to you because it's important. And at the same time, you you can't blame somebody for blowing you off if the information that they're getting is something that seems not that far out of the realm of normal, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, assessments are really where it starts. It is. And if you can... Do a good assessment, build a relationship with your providers that so they know that you're what your assessment skills are. When you do go to them every now and then with that, I just don't feel right about this baby. They're going to listen to you a little bit more. I will constantly go to them with, I don't feel right about this baby with nothing to back it up. 
that time when you hit that, I'm not, I can't put my finger on it, but I know something's not right. right. They're not going to listen. But if you've been able to give them that good base in the beginning and you say, something's not right and I just can't put my finger on it right now, they're going to take heed and they're going to wait for you to come back or they're going to come to you, to that patient and do an assessment themselves because they're like, maybe I should listen to what they're saying. I will never forget how proud I was. I had been a nurse about five years and I called one of our NPs at two in the morning and really all I was looking for was uh, something easy that didn't require her to come to the bed. You know, it, it was just something that I felt like needed to be done. And she showed up in the nursery at two o'clock in the morning and she was one who was actually usually pretty well known for not showing up at two o'clock in the morning. And I kind of looked at her when she walked in, like, what are you doing? And she said, uh, I figured if you were calling me, I should be here. And I was like, oh, yay. I've grown. I grew. Yay, I grew. All right. So, Michelle, start with the delivery room. I feel like you're better at talking about that than I am. So, when you're walking into a delivery room, anybody that's done NRP, we're going to start with basic, what do you start with? There are four questions you should ask before every single delivery You need to know what your gestational age is. Mm -hmm. Starting there, we'll start kind of how you proceed with what you're going to do in the delivery room. Is it term, preterm, extremely preterm? You do different things for different gestational ages. The next thing, what does your amniotic fluid look like? Was it clear? Was it meconium stained? Meconium stained on a term kid or meconium stained on any kid. But term kids in particular, you're going to go and you're going to start looking for that meconium aspiration syndrome. Um, how many babies are expected? Are you going to a singleton or a multiple right. delivery? How many people? Because that's going to determine how many people you're going to need in the room. Right. Um, and then are there any other wish, additional risk factors? What's mom's history been like? Did she, is she a setup? She GBS positive. Is she um, a gestational diabetic? Is she a brittle diabetic? You Having that information going into the delivery will start you a start a foundation for your initial assessment. So if I walk in and Rebecca is my delivery nurse and she looks at me and says, we're delivering a 34 weeker of a gestational diabetic mom. Right. So at that point, I'm going to be like, okay, the likelihood of this kid being hypoglycemic after birth is higher. Right. Um, this kid respiratory issues, right? Possibly. If this mom's been a brittle diabetic during this time, we may be even looking at some cardiac issues. Right. So you kind of need to know where to start. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I I mentioned a focused assessment, and that's something that's really big for me is, is a focused assessment. There's a lot of things that we do that you don't necessarily do on purpose. You don't really realize what you're doing and learning, I feel like to do it on purpose just makes you better. So knowing that those questions are there, you know, a lot of you who are listening who have delivery experience, you already were thinking through the things that Michelle was saying before she was getting them all the way out. But 
being able to verbalize that and being able to do it on purpose, you know, something sometimes a little different. Um, and it, it does, it helps you tailor, right? So knowing that diabetes in mom can lead to cardiac issues and can contribute to surfactant deficiency, um, you know, a 34-weeker, you don't have to worry about macrosomia. But if you told me it was a 39-weeker mm-hmm. of a diabetic mom, right? Now I'm yeah. worried about shoulder dystocia. I'm worried about a baby that's uh, macrosomic. I'm anticipating in the back of my mind the possibility of an emergent section because, you know, now we can't deliver. Right. And so it's important to start with those, your basic assessment because then let's flip it back to a preterm baby. I'm going in for a 23-weeker. So at that point, I know that thermoregulation is huge. Right. So I'm going to need to make sure that I have my Nia wrap, my warm hat, my uh, mattress pad, my heated mattress pad to go into that. And to be honest, like there's another piece when you talk about that too, you know, for the extremely preterm, but also babies who have multiple anomalies, who have known issues the question going into resuscitation in that delivery is, are we resuscitating, Mm -hmm. right? Because sometimes a family will decide that they only want to palliate. Well, then the way that I intervene might be different from the way that I would if we want everything done, right? Right. So all of that really, it, it is huge when you consider even what, we are going to do what role do we play right and then so now you've gotten your questions answered right you know what you're dealing with so now your baby's born it comes to you in your warmer yay happy birthday baby yay happy birthday so what what are we doing now we're starting with are we breathing mm-hmm. what's our color look like what's our tone mm-hmm. what's our heart rate those are things that you're looking at immediately with every baby you want to make sure that Yeah, they're probably going to come out and be a little blue, but when they take that first breath, are they pinking up? Right. My most favorite practitioner ever in all of the world ever taught me a long time ago, even before. I mean, I was like so green that it was painful. Uh, She taught me if you can grab the umbilical cord and dance, you're good. Mm -hmm. You're good. Somebody grabs that umbilical cord and it's... A lot of times you'll see them move their finger, tap their finger in the air. Right. If that finger is just tapping away super quick, you know, you're good. That finger is tapping at a very slow pace. I'm going to need to pick up my assessment and I'm going to need to know what's going on. And I think that there's some things that, again, happen in the background in your brain that you aren't aware of that being more intentional about help. Like, for example, if your heart rate is good and you're trying to breathe and you're not so pink, I may be slightly less urgent about it because I'm going to assume that that pink is probably going to come, Mm -hmm. right? Versus like you're blue when you came out, your heart rate isn't coming, your respiratory effort isn't there. It's it's something different. Something different's going on. You, when babies are born, they're not going to stay at a hundred percent. They're not no. going to be nice and pink and cute and what you see when everybody holds them up to say, "Look at my new baby." Oh my God! The first time you were in a delivery and you saw how blue a baby was when it came out, did you panic? A little bit. A little bit. Because you're like, uh, or when we changed the process in the delivery room, we used to not um, put a pulse ox on immediately. 
Well, that's changed over the years. You put the pulse ox on, and when you think about it, you're going to think that pulse ox is going to immediately read like 90 or better. Nope. Most of the time, it's 70s. 60s they take a moment babies take a moment of transition we've talked about that with fetal circulation and shutting off all the extra holes in the heart to make the blood go in the right direction to the lungs right so we know the babies are going to take a minute to transition to be able to bring their sats up to within normal levels of what we're used to but then now i'm 10 minutes out my baby sats are still in the 60s right but they're pink So what's going on here? Well, so for the record, I have to add this. We used to work with an attending who I love, who knew that I'm nerdy and that I always wanted all the nerd things. And so he would like store up random nerd facts and teach them to me. And he taught me that you have to have five milligrams per deciliter of desaturated hemoglobin to look blue, which means if you have a baby who's polycythemic, right? So they have a whole lot of red cells and they have a whole lot of hemoglobin and they desat, meaning they have more than that five milligrams per deciliter, they're not actually going to desaturate because they've got enough hemoglobin that it doesn't matter, but they're going to look so blue. Like those babies that you see that your sat is 92, but they're blue, that circumoral, circumorbital cyanosis, and you're like, what is going on? You know, and then you find out that their hemoglobin is like 14 Okay, well, it also means that you have a baby who's, you know, not reticking yet and your hemoglobin is like eight and a half and we're sitting on it and we're trying to let you manage your life, right? And the monitor says that they're satting 40 and you're Rebecca and you hit the monitor silence because you're pink, it's fine. Oh, no, that baby probably is actually desatting. They just don't have enough hemoglobin to count. In that desaturation, right? So, you know, color is part of the picture, but obviously not all the picture. And and the sap probe changed that, mm-hmm. right? Yes. It, it gave us like a different picture of what was going on. Right. Because there, there is transition. Like she said, you can look at there. I can remember many times being in the delivery room. This kid looks like they're blue as they can be. We decide, oh, we've got to take them back to the NICU. We get a term kid that's blue to the NICU, put them on the monitors in the unit. Their heart rate's 150. Their stats are 95. They're just blue. Yeah. And they're not blue for any reason. They're blue for polycythemic. I can't even say it. (laughs) So that's where you need those good assessment skills. Right. And practicing those assessment skills and not being afraid to say, hey, can I go to this delivery with you and be able to do that? Or if you know that you've got someone, a good mentor in your unit who has amazing assessment skills, walk me through an assessment. How many times, Michelle, did I tell you? (laughs) A lot. Either I want to go to the delivery with you or tell me, tell me what you saw. Mm -hmm. Millions, millions. Y'all, Michelle put up with so much over the years. (laughs) But being able to find your person that can walk you through and help you learn those assessment skills is an invaluable piece of being a good nurse. And then you not being afraid to ask. Right. To show me. When you talk about delivery room, I think another big piece that's different, you know, and part of the reason why I'm glad I had a different background before I started doing deliveries 
that assessment has to happen so quickly. Really, you don't realize that you've already made like 40 decisions in your head by the time that five-minute APGAR hits. hits. I think about the decisions um, now that delayed cord clamping has become so prevalent in the delivery room. Just as I'm standing there looking over the doctor's shoulder in that 30 to 45 second delayed cord clamping of what does this baby look like? I'm already, my brain's already going, what am I going to do the minute they hand this baby to me? Right. Oh man, that's a long stretch of time. You don't realize how long that is until when you've got a baby that doesn't, look exactly like they have the best tone or doesn't right. look like they have the best color and you're waiting that 45 seconds. It is long, long. It seems like 45 hours. It does. So in the delivery room, right? We're looking color, tone, heart rate, uh, raspers and, and irritability. Like you really, baby should be annoyed with me. I'm annoying. Mm-hmm. I'm annoying. Like, they, yeah. A baby that comes out of their nice, warm, little, dark environment where they have just been in the most amazing place and then comes out in a very cold, bright, loud room. Yeah. Should be mad. Right. They and should if that be. baby is not mad, we got why? Issues. Why are you not mad? Right. What is not right? Right. So, you know, you make the call. You decide this kid is me. Mm-hmm. I don't love it. Right. Right. Something is really off. Usually I feel like that call is more than anything going to be based on the idea of either a known setup. Right. Something that happened in those four questions that you you heard that made you suspicious. It's going to be because of respiratory effort or it's going to be because of a heart rate issue. Um, Another outliers moms on mag. Because those babies sometimes are born very sleepy. That's true. And don't want to participate in life. Right. Non-participation is a problem. You know, life is kind of an active, active participation (laughs) thing. You have to do something. You have to do something. You got to try. So we take the baby to the NICU, right? So Mm -hmm. now let's talk about what is a really good head to toe. When you start your, your fontanelle, anterior fontanelle should be open. It should be soft. It should be flat. If it is not any of those three things, we got a problem. And then I learned that you should actually physically palpate the the place where each of those four bones meets at the anterior fontanelle. Each one of those bones should move independently. Those suture bones are approximated. Split sutures is like an option in your charting a lot of times. Split sutures you really are only seeing in kids who have got bad ventricular medically hydrocephalus, either post-hemorrhagic hydrocephalus or congenital hydrocephalus. Mm -hmm. That means that those sutures aren't touching, right? There's a big space between them. Approximated is what they should be. And approximated is when they're near each other. But not fused. Right. If, because then you've got craniosynostosis. Fused is a whole nother issue. Craniosynostosis, super fun to say. I love that word. It means that the suture bones are fused in utero, which is pretty rare, but I mean, it happens. Mm-hmm. What's the other one? Split, separated, overriding, or proximal. Approximated. Mm -hmm. approximated is what you want to see. So then we move down and the next thing that we get to, depending on 
if you're going on the outside or if you're going interior, you have your eyes, mm -hmm. right? You're looking at your palpable, palpable fissures. I always say that wrong. Um, but that is the, the line of the eyelids and the spacing. Are they really far apart? Um, do they open, right? So if you've got a 23-weeker, it's possible that that, that fused? is fused. Um, and then also, like, directionality, right? So a lot of T21s may have a downward slant. There's some other mm -hmm. genetics that have, like, an upper slant. Yeah, um, alcohol may be lower. Yeah. So we're looking at kind of the the sizing. If you have um, ptosis of the eyelids, like if they're droopy and there's not mm -hmm. really a big space between um, the eyelids, the fissures, then that's... Or if you even have eyeballs. You keep going down the face, you have your nose. That um, flattened, wide nasal bridge, like um, achondroplasia, have kind of that broad, flat nasal bridge. Uh, T21 sometimes will have like a broad, flat nasal bridge. Again, nares, do you have two? Yep. Because a T13, T18, sometimes you don't. You got one eye, got one one nostril. And then your mouth, you're looking more than anything, the philtrum that like um, dip in your upper lip, mm -hmm. a flat philtrum is another, you know, minor marker. Um, you'll see clefts and, and cleft lip and cleft palate for the record don't always go together. Sometimes you have one and not the other. Do you, are, are your nares like actually working? Peyton nares, right? Peyton nares. If I'm passing a set, we actually had this come up not too long ago. So if I'm passing a suction catheter or an NG or an OG, does it pass on both sides? But then also, baby that it came up in recently, if you have a TEF, a, a TE fistula, a tracheoesophageal oh, fistula, I was trying to get to the actual <laughs> words, not the letters. Um, if you have a fistula, it's possible for you to pass a catheter to only like nine, mm -hmm. ten, but that doesn't mean that it goes all the way to the stomach. And I feel like sometimes when we pass a suction catheter, it's pretty normal for people to only pass it like six or seven cm's because they're just trying to suction, mm -hmm. you know, in the back of the nose when really you kind of need to push it to nineteen twenty to see does does it go all the way down. Yep. Yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about that. So then your chin, right? We've got all the nathias, micronathia, pronathia. Uh, and, oh, Beckwith-Wiedemann is one of my favorites. They have um, macroglossia, which is the tongue that's too big. Oh, yep. um, and they usually have like a stork bite right above the center of their um, nose, like in the middle of the forehead. Um, Beckwith-Wiedemann. And then if you go out, your ears. Mm -hmm. So low set ears, people have asked me, low set ears, if you take a piece of paper and take the flat edge, fold it in half or turn it sideways, whatever, and you follow the line of that fissure in your eyelid, right? If you mm -hmm. follow your eyelid shape line, the top outer portion of your ear, the pinna of the ear, you need to have 30% above that piece of paper, so less than 30% of that is low set ears. Last I knew it was green. I don't know if it's still green. It's still green. But it tells you all the right, like, quote, unquote, y'all can't see the air quotes, but, quote, unquote, right measurements for things. And I have been restricted from being allowed to purchase it because 
I have been told that I'm the one who would obsessively measure just for curiosity to see. And that is also not an inaccurate statement. That is so incredibly true. <laughs> like, I can only imagine the amount of tape measures that would be used. I would. Just just for curiosity's sake. I would get like a nanometer. I know I would just to see. Just curiosity. Anyway, so yeah, 30%. And low set ears are tied to what? Trisomies. Maybe Fetal alcohol syndrome. Maybe I, I'm thinking system renal issues. Oh yes, renal. Yeah, kidney drama goes with low set ears. Not really sure why those two things go together, but they do. I don't know why. Um, right. So then we're we're moving down, looking at the neck. Right, uh, webbing in the neck um, mm-hmm. can be tied to a lot of the uh, genetics. Do yeah. they have a fat pad? You keep going down. Your shoulders. Shoulders. You may see some palsy, brachial palsy. Yes. Shoulder dystocia. Sometimes they will move uh, one side, not the other. Mm-hmm. And symmetri- uh, sy- symmetry. <laughs> symmetry is is also part of all of this, right? Mm-hmm. So if I have two of something. They should be, they look, should look alike and should be symmetrical. Yeah, mostly. I mean, everybody's a little asymmetrical, but. I didn't say they had to be perfectly similar. Right. They just they should, should be close. Look close. They should look close. Um, so you come down from the shoulders. Nipples. Do you have? But really broad space nipples can actually be tied to things like turners. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in turners, they call it a shield-like chest where they have really broad spaced nipples. And it looks very like wide at the top and gets more like triangular. Mm-hmm. Um also, you're looking for things like a pectus, right? So if, you're, if your sternum sort of dips out and looks like you've had an ice cream scoop taken out of your chest, um, kind of we're looking at spacing of the ribs. But when you're looking, going back to the pectus and the scoop in your chest, when you have, what if you don't know you have a pectus and you're like, oh my gosh, my kids, look at the retractions. We need, oh, yeah. need surfactant. Right. We need this. Do you have a pectus? Right. Because the pectus is going to make you look like you're in respiratory distress. Yeah, but if you're breathing unlabored with sats in the 90s, chances are... You're all right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, the other one I think of is uh, D hernia. You know, unknown D hernias. The scaphoid. They have that barrel chest and mm-hmm. then like a scaphoid abdomen. Now we're looking a little further down. We've got your arms. Uh, I know with Cruzon syndrome, like your joints will lock. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're looking at range of motion. Um, we're looking again at symmetry. Uh, fingers. Do I have five? Did they bring friends? Did they leave some of their friends home? Did we have amniotic banding where nothing actually grew where it's supposed to? Also possible. What's the other one where, like, the radial bone doesn't form? Oh, yeah, and then their hands are like... Yes, like, it looks like somebody has attached the hand almost to the to the elbow. Yes. Um. So those kind of anomalies, you know, polydactyly and syndactyly. You know, when you talk about polydactyly, and, and this is not necessarily something that nursing does, but something kind of to know in the back of your head. We talk about polydactyly. Do they have a bone in the extra digit or is it, is just, it skin? just skin that kind of formed without a bone? As far as treatment, that 
that changes things. If it's no bone, they can tie it off versus bone where plastics has to be involved. Then we're looking at an abdomen. There's so many things in the abdomen that can go wrong. Right. So let's talk about baseline normal abdomen first. First. And then when we talk about in a minute, when we finish all the way down, we'll we'll do a quick focus and we'll come back to the abdomen. So a, a normal assessment, although in a lot of charting, um, their normal does not include rounded. Rounded is considered abnormal. But I'm going to throw it out there and say... Except for D hernias and extraordinarily rare cases where there has been no blow by, no CPAP, no nothing. I can't think of really any abdomen in a baby that's not rounded. True statement. Like to me, I feel like if you've given any CPAP, even if you try and like pull air off of the belly, we've still gotten now to a place where it's rounding. But rounded rounded in a normal baby and rounded in the NICU world can be so vastly different. Because usually if it's not rounded and it's flat, there's something else going on. When you assess an abdomen, lots of people sort of like tap at it and they're like, oh, it's soft. I want to touch my middle finger and my thumb almost. Mm-hmm. Like I want to squeeze your belly and be almost able to touch them. And you should be really irritated with me because I'm annoying, but they should be able to squish. And when you're squishing going into that, you have to probably sit there a minute too, because they're pissed. Right. So they're going to bear down. So it's going to not feel soft. Right. You have to let them relax. Get over So that you can squish like you need to. Right. And it's really weird, I think, if you haven't paid attention, but you should feel kind of some loopy intestine, like some sort of something going on. So then we're going to move down to a diaper, our diaper, our bits and pieces. If you're a girl, what do you have in there? Do you have your labia? Do both you of have, them. Majora, menorah. Yep. You got two. Do you have you both your labias? Do you have two holes down there with your vagina and your beehole? Or do you have one? Is a fisher. Technically, let's acknowledge the fact that you should have three. True. I hadn't moved back to the anus yet. Is there a fissure there? Mm-hmm. Looking at that, are they swollen? Are they not? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, gestationally changes, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that's where I was For headed. girls is, you know, also a possibility. Um, some vaginal discharge, which, I mean, again, those things a week out. If you're a boy, are the boys in the house? Yep. Are they there? Are they both there? That too. Cryptochordism. That's another one that's fun to say. Yes. Lots of assessment words are fun to say. They're just Raffi. fun. Oh, twisted Rafi. <laughs> twisted Rafi. Yeah. Your, what, if, go ahead. What does your penis look like? Is it micro? Macro? Yeah. So technically, less than two and a half cm's is a micro penis. The Rafi is the ligament that runs underneath the bottom of the penis and a twisted Rafi is when there's kind of a corkscrew to the penis mm-hmm. um, or a cordy when it goes to one side or the other side um, is your external urinary meatus at the top the bottom in the middle the side right who knows right so a hypospadius epispadius it kind of amazes me that humans 
survived as a species when you think of all the things that can go wrong that they formed appropriately i know function appropriately anybody who feels like your life is falling apart just think about all the things that could have gone wrong before you were even born and then you know it's a little perspective does put it in perspective just a little all right so then we got our knees Mm, hips oh i forgot the hips you got hips you got a hip she ain't standing up it's true so congenital hip dysplasia, right? So mm-hmm. that's where that um, hip click. Yes, you're assessing for that hip click, right? And then in adults, not necessarily in kids. You know, I, I think back to my old adult days. If your hips dislocated one leg longer than the other, which can happen, yeah, which can happen in babies, but it's not as noticeable, right? Your knees, again, with the the mobility and you know the symmetry of movement on on both sides. Your feet, uh, rocker bottom feet, mm-hmm. you know, people always ask me what rocker bottom feet are. It literally looks like the bottom of a rocking chair. Like uh, somebody took a Mr. Potato Head foot and they like took it off of the leg and scooched it back a little and put it back on, which I think is really interesting in preemies because they don't have the same kind of fat distribution. Mm-hmm. So it's real possible for a baby to look like they have rocker bottom feet when they're born at like 24, 25 weeks. And by the time they get, you know. Closer to term, they're not. Something's not right. Something's not right. So that's why you need to know what a good, right, normal assessment is to be able to pick out the abnormal things that might lead you down a different path. Right. And I tell people all the time, I remember asking my preceptor, how am I going to know if something is wrong if something is not normal you know when you're new it's hard to know what's not normal and what is normal Mm -hmm. you know it's important to have somebody somewhere in your unit that you feel like you can go to and say help me look at this Mm -hmm. and also you know ideally either that same person or a different person that you can go to and say now explain to me teach me why Mm -hmm. teach me why this is abnormal teach me why this is happening talk me through kind of you know what makes this abnormal what's it concerning Mm -hmm. for and you know one of the things going with finding your person probably one of the biggest compliments to me as a nurse and it was said to me this weekend at work was i i want to come to you or rebecca but Rebecca's busy right now. She said, so I, you two were my people that I want to come to and ask this question because I know you're going to teach me and not make me feel stupid about it. I, I got to tell you that. And then a parent saying, thank you for teaching me to feel like a parent or helping me feel like a parent. Those you're right. Those two are like the pinnacle of mm-hmm. my career even i said to you this weekend thank you for teaching me (laughs) (laughs) and also thank you for teaching me to teach right because that's the other thing for those of you who are are listening and who are saying the same things with us you know a lot of this is kind of internal and it when you are seasoned i feel like it's happening so fast and on such a background level that we don't always think to narrate what we're doing mm-hmm. i love it also what a great way to end today yep so so next uh next time we'll talk about a focused assessment since this assessment was 
long. A lot. A lot. A long. A lot. But I think it's important. Hopefully mm-hmm. it helped you somewhere and you can kind of keep it in the back of your head for a practice. Questions about assessment, hit us up. Let yeah. us know what you think. Let Thanks us know for hanging out answer. with us.